everybody, and welcome to the Poetry Space. We are on episode 35 this week, and we're going to be talking about poem endings, which I'm super excited about because, to be honest, poem endings are something that it doesn't come as naturally as some other aspects of writing a great poem. So I think that I'm hoping that I'll get the chance to learn a lot today from all of us and from you all, who I'm sure have a uh, way more to add probably on this topic than me this week. So I'm really excited uh, to go ahead and get into it. Uh, Tim will be here in just a second. I know because he's in the next room. So he's not going to know show me in the same house, I think, probably. And there he is right now. So I'll go ahead and add Tim as a co-host and get this party started. So I love the opportunity this week to look at so many different poem endings and really hone in on that. Usually I'm thinking about the poem itself um, and the whole body of the poem versus the ability to just focus in on the ending and really drill down into it. I think it's going to make for an exciting space. So how are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing great. Thanks, Katie. We're trying out you tuning in from the computer, I guess, this today. Actually, so we'll see I'm how my mind and chickened out, so that's why I'm not. But, uh... <laughs> I'm on speakerphone because I forgot my headphones, but that's okay. It's a great day, and thanks for making me this delicious coffee, too, which is what I'm drinking. Oh, that's kind of you to say. I don't know if it deserves that. It's a lot of coffee. It's a lot of caffeine packed into that tiny, tiny container, so that's the important thing, right? <laughs> definitely is. So for the opening poem, I was thinking, I was having trouble deciding what to do. There's so many great endings, so many great examples. And at the last minute, I decided to go with Jack Gilbert. The Forgotten Dialect of the Heart, which I, uh, I was planning on reading it on a potential space that we didn't do earlier. So I'm going to read it this time. Uh, this is The Forgotten Dialect of the Heart. How astonishing it is that language can almost mean and frightening that does not quite. Love, we say. God, we say. Rome and Machiko, we write. And the words get it all wrong. We say bread and it means according to which nation. French has no word for home. And we have no word for strict pleasure. A people in northern India is dying out because their ancient tongue has no words for endearment. I dream of lost vocabularies that might express some of what we can, what we no longer mean. Maybe the Etruscan texts would finally explain why the couples on their tombs are smiling. And maybe not. When the thousands of mysterious Sumerian tablets were translated, they seemed to be business records. But what if they are poems or songs? My joy is the same as twelve Ethiopian goats standing silent in the morning light. O oh Lord, thou art slabs of salt and ingots of copper, as grand as ripe, barley, lithe under the wind's labor. Her breasts are six white oxen loaded with bolts of long-fibred Egyptian cotton. My love is a hundred pitchers of honey. Shiploads of thuya are what my body wants to say to your body. Giraffes are this desire in the dark. Perhaps the spiral Minoan script is not language but a map. What we feel most has no name but amber, archers, cinnamon, horses, and birds. That was Jack Gilbert, of course, with the Forgotten Dialect of the Heart. And I love just the, the build-up to that ending. And one of the things about endings is, um, you know, an ending should feel both surprising and completely expected at the same time. And I think that's what what that poem does a good example of. Yeah, well, I have to say, if I had somehow written that poem, if I was somehow Jack Gilbert, I would be very honored you picked that poem, having read millions of poems. You could have picked any one of them and you picked that. Um, I think that that illustrates too what, you know, you taught me so much, 
him through, you know, us talking and also just through critique of the week where we talk about, you know, poem endings every week um, with what we're really looking for and what really makes a good ending. So I think that we should also start out by maybe talking about what makes for a bad ending um, because I made all of these mistakes at some point or another when I was, well, I was always trying to get better, better at writing poems, of course, but I'd like to talk specifically about some of the mistakes that I think are the most common. So I think first of all, repeating the title is extremely common as a mistake. So the problem with that, of course, is that if you really love a poem, the first thing you do is you go back and read the title. And I'm always hoping that I feel differently about the title than I did at the, at the beginning, you know, before I read the poem. And so repeating it ultimately means the person's reading like the same exact phrase uh, back to back if they're doing that. Yeah, well, what we want for a poem to do is to, to sort of powerfully transform our mental state. And if you end it's something that already existed, was already explained, you don't have the same power. It sort of loses the oomph. And that's what you see a lot with, um, you know, the main, main edit I make uh, in Rattle. If I'm accepting a poem, we don't edit too much. But if I do, it's usually to cut off the last line or the last stanza. Um, I'm not sure which one's more common, the, to cut off the beginning stanza or the last stanza. Because uh, we have tendencies to try to explain in both cases, but uh, but the, you know, ending on something where you know you you, you have to leave something too. It's like uh, something has to linger for the reader as well, which is an important aspect of it. You know, for a great poem, there has to be this sort of air that hangs after you uh, finish the last line, which is maybe the sigh and the the, the breath exhaling or something, but just that that stays there with you, or else you don't want to reread the poem and it doesn't become a great poem. Well, I blame how much we were all taught, at least in America, the five paragraph essay, where it's like, you realize the meat of the poem is over. You've got to summarize. You got an A on your five paragraph essay assignment. It's cool. And you've just got to like fight that impulse to continue explaining. But really what it is, is of course, you know, you want the reader to be able to make the leap themselves. You have to trust the reader to get there. And if the reader can't get there, you haven't done enough in probably the body of the poem, and that's where you need to go back and look. But there has to be something where the reader feels like they are putting it all together at the end, even if it's a more subtle ending, I think. Yeah, it reminds me of, I used to bring this up earlier, and then I haven't in so long, I forgot the name of the movie. There's a movie that's like a romance comedy with uh, Will Smith, and he's giving like love advice to somebody. I think it's um, that comedian guy, James, whatever. But, uh, but he's talking about how you kiss somebody, right? And you don't go all the way, you go 80% of the way, and then they have to come the other 20%, right? And so, you know, that's what ending kind of should be. It should be making the reader have to have a sense of movement too, or else if it's too strong and too powerful, too forceful, it ends up, you know, you're just like smacking them in the face with it instead of uh, letting them participate in like the dance that is the poem. Well, I'm, I'm surprised that you're the one doing a rom-com reference for us all in this space, but I'm honored that you are. That's great. That's from Hitch, I think, right? Where he says <laughs> <laughs> the movie, yeah. And what's that guy's name? James, uh, I can't remember. I don't know. I am not good with the names, just on, uh, I just know Will Smith's lead. <laughs> That's all I know. Yeah, well, I do have a soft heart for the rom-coms. <laughs> Thank goodness. That's very good that you do. But also, too, in terms of it's funny with movies coming up, I think that, you know, it's interesting because what makes a great poem ending, I really thought about it's just, you know, what makes a great ending almost in any story and anything like the, the same qualities are, are all there. Another thing I was thinking about is just how important it is that the ending fits in with the tone of the rest of the poem, you know, and and how 
if it doesn't do that, there can be like a break with authenticity at the end. So that can run the danger of doing that. But at the same time, by and large, most of the time, the, the endings that are the most memorable are the ones that are the most dramatic, which is the same for like movies. Yeah, it's true. It's such a fine balance to walk. And then there's the issue too. You know, we have a lot of great examples of these really strong endings that people were sharing with us on social media the last couple of days. Um, there's, there's certain poems that have great metaphors at the end really powerful lines, really like deep philosophical lines or like sort of dramatic repetition or like pause. There's a whole way, a bunch of ways you can do it. But there's also the issue of, of that, even, even that becoming unsurprising because you're, if you read too many poems like that, um, you, you start to expect a strong ending like that. And then all of a sudden you're sort of, it's like too much almost, you know? And so I've, I've noticed talking to people on the Rattlecast um, a lot of poets who've been writing for a long time end up getting tired of those endings and wanting a more subtle, uh, less dramatic version, you know, to let you down gently and it's sort of a soft landing, I like to think of it. And there's certain, there's certain endings that do that instead. Yeah, well, that's something you've helped me on so much with it because I used to look at endings as like, endings are full stop gymnastic endings. You put your arms in the air and you own that poem. <laughs> a lot of times it's not actually what works for the, for the poem at hand. But why I think, too, poem endings are so important is I kind of think, like, you know, we talked about titles, and an amazing title is great, but not every title for every poem I, can be amazing. I think sometimes you have to set the scene, and the title has to perform that function, and it's a function that works, and it's great, but nobody's going to be like, wow, that title. But with the ending, you know, the strength of the ending, it, it really determines the quality of the poem, I think, more so than any single aspect of it. Yeah, there are a lot of poems that, you know, we read and, uh, you know, you, you think, especially judging something like the Rattle Poetry Prize, which we talked about last episode, there are a lot of poems that I'm reading them through the submissions. And I'm thinking, oh, this is so great. This is so great. This is so great. And then the ending is just like, what? <laughs> and then it just doesn't work. And, um, you know, but conversely, there's some poems that you sort of, you're lulled to to sleep. I call them, uh, it's like the uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, the, the rope-a-dope uh, poem where the, the poem just kind of drifting along and then smack in the face with that ending, which is what that uh, lying on the hammock at Duffy's farm poem that we started the thread with uh, is all about that. Um, you know, that I have wasted my life at the end of that poem is one of those lines that comes out of nowhere is like a shock. And then, you know, those kind of poems can be great too. So there's just so many ways to do it. Do you want to read that poem for us? I know, I think we've read it on the space before, or maybe Nate Jacobs read it. I know I've heard Nate Jacobs read it at some point, but I'd love for you to read it now, Tim, if you want. It's not very long, and it really illustrates a big shift. You want, Why don't I, uh, I'll read that poem, which is pretty short, and then I'll read uh, Mail Call by James Valvis, who I was trying to think of, a, of an opposite type of poem ending, and I think that's a good example. There's thousands of examples like it, but, um, but it's a good one. So I'll read that, and then I'll read Mail Call, okay? So here's, a, so here's Lying in a Hammock at William Duffy's Farm in Pine Island, Minnesota by James Wright. Over my head, I see the bronze butterfly asleep on the black trunk, blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells follow one another into the distance of the afternoon. To my right, in a field of sunlight between two pines, the droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over, looking for home. I have wasted my life. So that is the uh, the big 
twist ending short statement there's so much you can talk about that poem is one of the it's just one of the poems that's famous for the ending um, there are a bunch yeah. of other great James Wright poems with great endings but that one is like literally maybe the most famous ending poem I would have to say just thinking back to what I was shown in literary programs well it just feels like you're being thrown off the hammock at the end doesn't it there I mean it's just everything just just going along swimmingly and you feel like oh I know this poem you know, this is nice, this is pleasant, this is what poems are, and then that conclusion that I, I also love as being so fitting because it shows, you know, in those moments when we actually are in a hammock or letting our mind wander, like how crazy they wander and spiral. And I love that it doesn't really show the work getting there, but just how quickly that leap can happen internally, I think is, is so fitting for the poem. Yeah, and the ambiguity of it too. It's a, it's a really strong blunt statement that has a lot of charge to it emotionally but then it could be interpreted either way which is another fascinating aspect it's, it also includes the ambiguous ending which is another way to go about it uh because i don't know i've wasted my life because i have not spent this much time in a hammock or i have wasted my life because i'm sitting here in a hammock instead of doing something productive <laughs> so either way it uh it makes and both. For, both yeah, all at exactly. once that's how life actually is <laughs> yep <laughs> exactly so that was uh that was the uh James Wright poem. This is uh, Jim Velvis's Mail Call from uh, Rattle number 61. Mail Call. And it, so that's how this tells a story. And then the, the real weight of the story comes in the storytelling. And then it sort of lets you down gently at the end in, in, in a way that's interesting. Mail Call. We huddled around the drill sergeant like kids before a buff Santa and waited for our white envelopes. Night after night, nothing came for me. No girlfriend or wife, family disinterested, friends floating in the swells of their lives. Once I thought of writing myself a letter and sending it in the morning post to receive it sometime later that week so recruits would not pat my back in pity before stumbling to their bunks to read the happenings of things back home. After six weeks of this, one man, Barr, began sharing his wife's intimate letters, encouraging me to open them, read them, smell the patchouli sprayed onto their seal. It embarrassed me, this making a comrade a kind of literary cuckold before handing the letter back and not having read her words, only lipped them for his benefit. But it was like that in the military sometimes. People shared what could not be shared, a buckle, a spare bullet at the range, the last of one's canteen Kool-Aid. And sometimes, many years later, in a far different mail call, that man's war death as the nauseating news arrived in a plain, modest white envelope written in that woman's familiar hand, smelling of new smoke and old perfume. And so the real, the impact is that it's several lines up, you know, and then the old smoke and new perfume is something, you know, like setting you down with that idea that was passed on in the course of the poem. So that's another way of doing it. I think that's more subtle. Yeah. We were talking about too, the idea of closing with a scent and how powerful that is, because as you were commenting, Tim, as we were discussing it before, you know, it allows it to really linger because it says literally do linger. And so it just leaves it out there on like really striking the right tone. And then the other reason I think it's so effective is that scent is not employed enough really in poetry. So it stands out more because of that. And then of course, you know, scent itself is the, the sense that most activates our nostalgic type reflexes as well. So it's a really powerful way. In addition to the fact that that's just an amazing poem by James Valdis. <laughs> yeah. And just the, the idea of a scent lingering is a great metaphor for what you want the effect to be in a poem, because you want people to be, to want to come back and read it again. And you want that to stay with them. Like some kind of, like an echo would be another way of thinking about it too, but, but some way that the poem 
you know, lingers after the poem has ended is the way to make a poem really powerful. And because the, the whole point of poetry is to get these transformative experiences into a, a, a shape that can be transferred and we can give that experience to other people and then use it as sort of a, a mantra or a touchstone for, for understanding life. And so having it linger at the end is really the effect you want, like a scent lingers. So it's a great metaphor for what a, what a great ending does too. Well, what would you say for people that have the same problem that I still have occasionally in my poems, but I feel like I worked really hard to overcome, uh, people that have a tendency to in-stop, you know, gymnastics, putting their arms in the air type stop poems, like what, what are things that they can do to get more to the lingering effects that, you know, that you were just speaking about, Tim? Well, I think uh, one of the main things is to trust the reader. So I did have a poem, uh, that poem, um, After Work, which I explained on the uh, on the Critique of the Week last week, I think it was, where um, I had an ending that was like that, where I went too far. And because I, so I thought it wasn't displaying it enough. And then I realized, wait a minute, it, it makes total sense about that. So I cut off those last two lines. And, you, you know, just having a, a sense of trust that you've built up this connection enough that people understand where you're going at instead of having that like, ta-da, kind of closure, which... Um, feels it does and in a lot of poems it feels like um you know some kid doing something like tripping and falling and then you stand up and say yeah that was intentional you know <laughs> there's that kind of feel to that yeah definitely and the problem is with with that kind of it makes it feel artificial when it's like it's so neat because also poetry is an exploration of what is not neat if if nothing else you know and so it's suddenly wrapping up in the in the neatest possible way feels disingenuous just in terms of it being a poem you know because it's not what poetry really is is made to do made to explore i think yeah for sure well let's hear i think we should hear from some other people now uh, who do you want to talk to next well i think that joe barca found a beautiful naruda poem that he talked about really loving the ending on and i know he kind of balls because he's like it's a little bit long but i'm like come on if we don't have time for naruda in the poetry space we don't have time for anything so how are you doing today joe i'm doing great I, can i tell a little story first Always. well so so anyway i'm in a i'm in a poetry class surprise surprise and i've written this poem which i really like and um i ran it by somebody and they basically said the ending feels way too strong so I, i'm running it by my workshop group and i'm afraid they'll come back with the same message so i hadn't really learned this lesson before but i think i'm i'm hearing it loud and clear now but i'm dying to get their feedback and then if necessary i will uh modify it a little bit so thanks for that everyone uh, so anyway, I'm going to read the poem rather than talk about the ending, and then um, we'll, then I have a few thoughts on, on, on endings. So it's called Every Day You Play. Every day you play with the light of the universe. Subtle visitor, you arrive in the flower and the water. You're more than this white head that I hold tightly as a cluster of fruit every day between my hands. You are like nobody since I love you. Let me spread you out among the yellow garlands. Who writes your name in the letters of smoke among the stars of the South? Oh, let me remember you as you were before you existed. Suddenly, the wind howls and bangs at my shut window. The sky is a net crammed with shadowy fish. Here, all the winds let go sooner or later, all of them. The rain takes off her clothes. The birds go by, fleeing. The wind, the wind. I can contend only against the power of men. The storm whirls dark leaves and turns loose all the boats that were moored last night to the sky. You are here. Oh, you do not run away. You will answer me to the last cry. 
cling to me as though you were frightened. Even so, at one time, a strange shadow ran through your eyes. Now, now too, little one, you bring me honeysuckle. Even, even your breasts smell of it. While the sad wind goes slaughtering butterflies, I love you. My happiness bites the plum of your mouth. How you must have suffered getting accustomed to me, my savage, solitary soul, my name that sends them all running. So many times we have seen the morning star burn, kissing our eyes, and over our heads the gray light unwind and turning fans. My words rained over you, stroking you. A long time I have loved the sun to mother of pearl your body. I go so far as to think that you own the universe. I will bring you happy flowers from the mountains, bluebells, dark hazels, and rustic baskets of kisses. I want to do with you what spring does with the cherry trees. Well, I really love that poem. So, Joe, you read a lot of poetry. Why is this the ending that you chose to, to most? Well, of up? course, on this assignment, Katie, I went through all of, like, a lot of my favorite poems and books and whatever. And um, I don't know if it was Ted Kuzer or probably a million poets said, consider ending a poet on an image. And I think that is a really powerful thing. I mean, I think as you talked about scent, I think, you know, imagery is much better than saying, oh, I love you, or I feel really great or really groovy or whatever. So I think ending on, on an image is not a law or a rule, but I think it's a great guideline. So that's my thought, Katie. Yeah, I think that, I mean, definitely ending on an image and what's so, so impactful about, I think about this particular one, if it's like a collaborative image, almost, because Deruta is saying what, to you, you have to figure out what spring does with those cherry mm -hmm. trees, because that's what I want to do to sure. you. And so that makes it even more powerful because it's like, it's also, you know, imbuing the reader again with even more trust than just putting the image out there. No, absolutely. And, and he goes further than saying, you know, you bloom or you blossom or whatever. It's just such, it's such an original line. And so that's why I love it too. And the thing about images too, is they linger in the same way as scent lingers. You know, like if you're staring at some bright object and then you close your eyes, you still see it in that, uh, in those burned out, uh, rods and cones and and you have that after image effect and i think that's another great metaphor for what a great poem does and, and any an image like that that image lingers and stays in your mind's eye for for long after you close the book and i think that's another way to to keep the poem relevant and, and part of you and so i think that's the, re the reason why any an image works so well yeah and actually now i can say too it's making me feel like um with really good wine the finish stays in your mouth for a long time and it's kind of the same way with a poem if it's like kind of just a cute little happy poem like a cute little happy wine it just kind of is fruity and you enjoy it but it's gone but like a really nice wine that's um really in the right moment stays in your mouth and lingers the way an image does too. absolutely and kenny one thing i wanted to add too is if you think of a book of poetry oftentimes at least i've been advised and i think it's great advice is I think you should put your best poem, per, best, best poem first and maybe your 1A or your second best poem last or vice versa. So therefore, you know, you've got to be really strong at the beginning and really strong at the end. That doesn't mean strong like overpowering, but memorable. You know, you got to pull them in and then you got to want them to stay. So I think it's you think about a book of poetry that way sometime as well. Yeah, nobody's really going around saying, oh, the middle of that poem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, right. Well, it's funny if you reading submissions, uh, you know, especially when it's a longer poem. That's a, one of the sort of shortcuts you do. You read the first uh, half a page, maybe, and then if nothing is engaging you, I'll still read the last half of a page and make sure the ending is not great. And then eventually, you know, that's if, if neither of those work, then the poem just doesn't work. And so there's no point reading the whole thing. That's good to know for those of us facing a lot of submission readings this weekend. <laughs> I think George Kasana, you had your hand up. How are you doing today, George? Hey, I'm doing all right. Um, on the poem endings, I, you know, I, I, I really love the the shocking endings of Edgar Lee Masters on uh, on, on the Richard Corey poem, uh, and so that it kind of contrasts with the humorous ending. But I wonder if I, if you would let me read that poem. Sure. Do you have, could you just link it in the comments and then I can pin it at the top so that if anybody, I know I'm obsessive about reading along whenever possible. So if you can do that, that would be great. If not, it's okay too, though. Yeah, I can do that. I'll, I'll pin it on the comments. Great. Are you able to tell us uh, what you love about the ending then so much as you're doing it? <laughs> Mikey multitask here. Well, uh, the very first time I read it, I wasn't familiar with it. And, and, and I, you know, I started to read it. And when I got to that last line, it like really hit me. I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting that, you know. And then later on, I heard it as, as a lyric, uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel stuck it into, they made a song out of it. And, I, and then I recognized it, but, uh, but it just, it, it, it hit me. So that, that's why I like it. I, it keeps, keeps coming back to me whenever I think of a, a shocking ending. Should well, I, great. Okay, can I go ahead and read it? Sure, yeah. Yay. Okay, so I put the link over there. You guys can follow on the long link. Okay, Richard Corey by Edwin Arlington Robinson. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from sole to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still, he fluttered pulses when he said, Good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. That's the end. Well, I don't have to ask you to explain how that's a dramatic ending, I suppose. <laughs> Well, for, uh, that's a great example. We we're going to talk a little bit about formal poems and how the rhyme clicks the ending home, too. We want to have that, you know, we talked about at the very beginning, that feeling of something being inevitable, uh, but also surprising. And that's really, I mean, that's why a sonnet ends in a couplet um, in most forms, you know, because you get that close rhyme that's very visible, that, that makes it feel like you were going somewhere intentional from the beginning. And it, like, oh, that's where it was going. Uh, but then also where it actually goes can be surprising at the same time. So you have that tension between the expected and the, uh, and the unexpected. Not to mention the fact that with the sonnet um, involving the Volta in the last, sometimes it's two lines, sometimes it takes a little more than that. Um, you know, inherently as part of the sonnet, you're saying you are leaping and going somewhere at the end of this poem, which I think maybe is part of why there's a higher batting average for sonnets than an average poem because the expectation to go somewhere is more inherent in it. But also, um, as I tweeted about at the beginning of the week, it really has, looking at endings, made me realize that so many of my favorite endings are formal verse poems because 
you know, the expectation of reaching the part of it being expected is set up in a way that's more of a, a lulling you into a kind of a way with rhythm where if it's a great formal verse poem, you're not inherently just sitting there like, oh, this is iambic. You're just lulled by the iambic into, into really liking the poem. And then the ending hits. And so it's both like your body was expecting it to, to feel that way because of, of the meter and because of the rhyme. But then also within the content, it allows you to get to that point that's unexpected. Yeah, I should say too, I was thinking about this, Katie. And you know, me and you both do this thing in formal or, or uh, um, you know, free verse poems that uh, we have a, an internal rhyme that becomes an end rhyme at the last word very often. Um, or a slant rhyme off of an internal rhyme, you know, so we'll end in a way that, you know, and that, and that's to get that feeling, even in a free verse poem where there's no meter or regular meter or uh, regular rhyme scheme or anything like that, you still have this sense of, um, of clicking home when you have a rhyme to finish it off. It's like a period at the end of the sentence. And another form I like to do too, is uh, this, this style with heroic couplets that sort of start with really far slant rhymes and then get closer and closer and closer until the end, you're sort of edging closer to that true rhyme. And uh, having a true rhyme ending is just one of those ways to make the poem feel sort of resonant and feel complete at the same time. That's a really good point. And I, I love it when my first draft of a poem has done that with like edging closer, having slant rhymes and everything. And then that, you know, feeling of landing at the end with an actual, you know, rhyming couplet. I love it when it happens naturally. And then it's always fun to try to hide it with enjambment because otherwise people will think it's too obvious or something like that in general. But for the for the sonnet minus one book that I did, I did a lot of that where the last two lines are rhyming, but then it's also set up so that the last line, since it's 13 lines, is not a couplet, obviously, it's just a single line. So it has like a sense of not being complete because there's a missing line, but being complete because there's the rhyme too. So did you have a formal poem you wanted to read? I do. I could go ahead. Let me uh, pin it into the into the space. But I was so I was looking for ones because you guys know I've read Sonnet eighteen like fifty five thousand times <laughs> in this space because it is admittedly my favorite sonnet. But I was looking at formal verse poems today that I thought would work for this space. And let me just see if I I didn't book did I bookmark my own find? Yes, I did. Okay, so this is going to be. Um, it's an A.E. Stallings poem, just one of my favorite poets. And this is a villanelle after I take one sip of water. <laughs> and it's called Chairs. And let me make sure I pinned it to the top. Okay. Chairs. There are always fewer places than people. Those are the rules, although you found it makes it hard to enjoy the music. At parties, it's the old classic. Dance of no partners, round and round. It makes it hard to enjoy the music when the tune builds and starts to topple, the lurcher left in when the sound stops and suddenly the people scramble for what remains. The basic principle is not profound. It makes it hard to enjoy the music, the carnival feeling, green and awful, turning like the revolving ground. Fewer and fewer places and people pushing and crowding. It makes you sick and tired. You only want to sit down, but all the places are taken by people the music stutters. There is no music. So that's interesting because it's also kind of a reverse of what we were talking about. It's the absence of sound that actually closes out that particular poem. And what I love about the ending too is that, I don't know if it's just me, but 
it was not clear that we were talking about musical chairs until the very end. And then I was like, oh, of course we were talking about musical chairs. So I, I really like that aspect as well. Yeah, I mean, discovering something at the end is a, is a form that always works really well, you know, because we want to have that, that lingering feeling. I think that really is, that's what it comes down to. You talked about the wine lingering. There's so many ways we can describe the metaphor for it. But, but having the poem linger, I think, I'm trying to think of uh, other poems that, that don't have a lingering effect being the, um, the effect of the really great ending, no matter how it's achieved. Yeah, I don't think that, I mean, anytime something's really good, you don't want it to just go away. <laughs> it never, like it always has to linger. Even with these more abrupt, dramatic endings, they still have a way of lingering, even if it's just from like their own weight resonating as it impacts the earth and shakes it. You know, also is another way in which it uh, it can just feel so strong and is so important with it. And Tim, would you permit me too to read just some of the endings of your poems without reading the poems, so we can get a sense of of how you masterfully close out poems? Because you can feel it. I realize even without reading the whole rest of the poem, which is pretty crazy. Oh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you, what you want to share, Katie. Sure. Okay, well, I'm holding Tim's book, American Fractal. And um, I know that this poem, I think it's also Dick Westheimer's favorite poem from this book, but it's a poem from Dark Matter. And I love how this poem ends. And it doesn't even matter how the rest of the poem is, which is great too, but you can appreciate it without. So just read like... Um, the last four lines, or most of the last four lines. Or maybe like an ostrich will outrun our past and then our present. And this, my gift to you, whatever you'll make of it. The soul, a ship, in a bottle lost at sea, drops its anchor anyway. Oh, mic drop! <laughs> oh, well, I can, I can tell you how uh, it feels to me, because poems are like songs. And, and they're sort of a... a a lyrical resolution into the, uh, the quality of the song. There, there's a way that like, the, I don't know, it almost feels like to me that poems add up to a certain, um, it, like, a, like a cycle or something, you know, they have to add to a clean number at the end. And there's sort of a certain number of beats that are missing. And um, there you go. And, uh, and, and yeah, so, so at the end, it, it feels like you, I know exactly the amount of like, bada bum bums it needs even in a free verse poem there's some kind of way that it that it needs to get around the block and and add up and cancel out like balance out the negatives with positives as far as the rhythm goes it's strange to articulate but that's why when i when i was talking about that poem on the uh, critique of the week of mine from last week that after work um when i added that extra line to sort of clarify a little bit what i was talking about the the whole rhythm felt off because I, there, there was a sense of the missing beat. And I can hear it in poems all the time, other people's, not just mine. There's some sense of, of completeness to it. And I don't know, it, it has to do with the, the music somehow and, and somehow, um, you know, ending on the right, you know, if you're listening to a song, like I'm terrible at music, like I'm not a musician. I can play guitar a little That's bit. That's too strong. You're, you're okay. way harsh. I'm sorry I interrupted. Okay. But I'm, I'm a very <laughs> uh, amateur-ish in my music ability, but I can play a song and you can know which note it's supposed to end on. And I've never really understood that exactly. Um, hang on, I'm trying to mute people. Yeah, so, so I never know, you know, you, you know you want to end on, like if you're finger picking like the chords, somehow there, you know, maybe like Dick Westheimer can talk about this. I know he plays a lot of guitar, but you know which string to end on as you're finger picking the chord for some reason. Um, you know, if you want to end on the, the D or something, you know you do just by hearing it. I don't quite know why, but the, a poem works that way too as far as just the rhythm and the sound goes. 
Yeah, I definitely, so I remember when you interviewed the great formalist, Rena Espelot, and she said she hears the, the, you know, the rhythm of the poem in her head before she actually puts the word to the rhythm. And I know Rena Espelot, obviously, but I get, like, the closest I get is I can hear, like, the beats that I want it to close out of. Like, I can hear, like, the dum da dum da dum da dum da dum And that's what, what this poem needs at the end. So that's the closest, the closest that I get, personally. I think Joe Barca has his hand up and has an opinion on this. So we'd love to hear that. Yeah, I don't know if it's exactly on that, but I know you all are into prompts, and I love a great prompt. Uh, Just as an aside, I sent Katie a prompt this week to write a terrible poem, so hopefully we can talk about that someday. But one prompt that I I was given is to take the 10 best poems you've ever written and the endings to each of those 10 poems and put them together and create a poem. And it was a really, really fun exercise. So just a thought on that. That's interesting. I feel that it might give me stage fright. I'm like, oh my God, these are the best words ever written. And now I will attempt to include myself among them. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fun prompt. Well, that's an interesting exercise because I don't know if, if you could, if it would work that way, you know, because they do, for what I was talking about, that sense of rhythm and completeness and fulfillment. And I'm going to remind everybody to remove your microphones while we're not speaking because uh, there have been a lot of people I've been muting. But anyway, um, yeah, so. Uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if that would work. If if having those all of those sounds, I mean, just on a musical level, if that would work in the poem. I think Tim, you, when I did it, you had to really do a lot of modification. It was filled with great words and great imagery, but you couldn't like hit a home run on every line. So I think I get what you mean too. Yeah, that's a really cool exercise, and I think we should do bad poems as topic too, Katie. That'd oh my fun. god, so fun! Yeah, we totally should. Let's hope that some of my journals from from when I was little still exist, that you guys can hear me angst about my parents. I'm sure everyone wants that. <laughs> Let, let's do or a just, shift. Or just this week and the bad poems I've written this week. I don't have to pretend like I have to go back that far, but we should totally do that in the future. It's a good point. And I'll read some of my bad poems because nobody's well, going mean, to share. The question of what even is a bad poem is fascinating. But let, let's do a shift to a different type of ending we haven't talked about yet, which is, I don't know what to call it, but there's sort of this um, almost like meta ending where the poem, um, the poet participates in the ending in a strange way, turning it on itself in the same way that the farm does, uh, you know, Duffy's farm, and yet on like a different layer of, of the poem. I'm going to read two poems, actually, for this. There's two examples of what I'm talking about. Um, the first, which I have tweeted somewhere, is um, Zimborska's photograph from September 11. It's probably the best 9-11 poem there is. But, but notice how um, Zimborska ends this. Uh, photograph from September 11. They jumped from the burning floors. One, two, a few more, higher, lower. The photograph halted them in life and now keeps them above the earth toward the earth. Each is still complete with a particular face and blood well hidden. There's enough time for hair to come loose, for keys and coins to fall from pockets. They're still within the air's reach, within the compass of places that have just now opened. I can do only two things for them, describe this flight and not add a last line. And that's how the poem ends. So the poem becomes suddenly self-referential and aware of itself. And, and And there's ways that you can you know, su- surprise, it doesn't happen very often you know, that you can find a way to pull it off. It's kind of almost like uh, occasionally concrete poems work well. And occasionally you can do it like this. Here's another one from Rattle. 
Um, hopefully no one's read this poem yet, but maybe a few of you have. This is uh, Jane Hirschfield, who's going to be the guest in a couple weeks on the Rattlecast. But this is Those Who Cannot Act from Rattle number 26. So I didn't pin this. So you don't see what's coming, but here we go. Those Who Cannot Act. Those who act will suffer, suffer into truth. What Achilles omitted, those who cannot act will suffer too. The sister banished into exile, the unnamed dog soon killed. Even the bystanders vanish one by one, peripheral, in pain, unnoticed. Well, and that's it. Yeah, that's the end of the poem. I didn't cut out at all. The poem just cuts itself out with no dash or no ellipsis, no sense of, um, you know, that it was supposed to do that. And so in the, in, when you come across in the book or in the issue of Rattle, you think maybe it's second, it's a mistake and a typo. Um, but, you know, you, it becomes you, the reader, who cannot act to finish the poem. Um, and, and so like someone who, you know, it's talking about someone who died suddenly and has no recourse and nothing else to, um, to do. I mean, it's just gone like that, like the ending of The Sopranos, which I think is wonderful, maybe because of this poem. <laughs> and uh, everyone else thinks it's very, very uh, unhappy with it. But, uh, but it's a wonderful way to end a poem and to make you suddenly participant in the actual experience of that, where it was like this sort of, you know, abstract concept that she was talking about. Then all of a sudden she enacts it in you in the process of that poem. So I think that's a fascinating way to end a poem. And, and there's ways that you can twist and manipulate that we, you know, a lot of poems, it's, it's something that exists, a style of poem that, that plays at the end like that. I feel like there, there needs to be a term for that kind of an ending. I mean, that's fascinating. It, it is almost like a concrete poem in, in a bolder way somehow is, is how it feels. And I mean, it is true. It's like, it's kind of brilliant too, in terms of it's like a cut base of flowers. You can't use those flowers again. You have to really enjoy them because it wouldn't be a, like, you can't be a poet who suddenly starts saying this every poem. It becomes, would become completely ineffective, but that's really an amazing use of that poem. We all didn't know if you cut out or not. And I didn't let myself click on the poem because I wanted to be surprised. And then I was surprised as well. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to give everybody that experience, but that's the thing. It's suddenly, you know, you, instead of a, being a bystander, like they're talking about, you become a participant in that experience too, which is what we're trying to do with the poem just in general and sort of do it in that really surprising, you know, sudden way is really, really amazing. Yeah, definitely. Let's see. Let's go to, so George has his hand up and then we haven't, uh, Dick Westover, I know, had some thoughts he was sharing before the space about endings too. So after George, I'd like to hear Dick's thoughts too. Yeah, my thought isn't isn't relevant anymore, Katie, because you beat me to it. I was going to say we could call that form the Twitter rug. So enough of that. <laughs> That's amazing, the Twitter rug form or the X rug form, which I cannot adapt to the fact that this is actually called X now. But yes, maybe the X form would, would be a little bit more fitting, I guess, than, uh, than Twitter in a way. But That's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, Dick Westheimer, what are your thoughts on poem endings? I know, like, for, for your poems, I feel like uh, that you personally write, you are really good with endings, too. I feel like they have a beautiful way of coming full circle that often involves, you know, something with astrology or the universe and zooms out in this nice way. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what makes for a great ending. Well, <clears throat> I wish I knew. Um, I do stick with... Uh... Um, and with Tim's notion of surprising and inevitable as sort of my guidepost. Uh, and if I don't arrive there, then I sort of work back up into the poem and, and, and you know, rewrite or sometimes write further, which I don't often do. But I think part of 
why my poems end that way is because I won't, you, you'll never see the ones that are still in my draft files that didn't end. And um, I'm not yet courageous enough to do the sort of very soft landings that some of my favorite poets do. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's I, I don't feel folks would take me seriously or not. I, I'm just not sure. Uh, but that's something I need to write into. I did want to comment on Tim's notion of music because I think part of it's relevant and part of it isn't. Uh, you're probably 90% of the poems you, you, um, or songs you hear end on the one, end on the root note. And it becomes inevitable as the song sort of works through there. Uh, a few of them end on the four or five, which is less resolved. And I think the equivalent of a poem like um, uh, the one you just read of Jane Hirschfield might end on some other, some other note where you have absolutely no resolution except for what you create in your head. But to the extent that you know, most poems that at least I like end with these, you know, these uh, gymnastic endings. That's landing on the one. It's just inevitable. But it isn't always surprising in music, which is um, how I think the math of of music does not fit with the sort of unmath of poetry. Um, and I, I use unmath guardedly because I often think of poems as sort of having a, a formula, but one that I have to disrupt. Um, so that that's that's basically it. I I, um, I really appreciate the ones that we've read and um, uh, anxious to hear more. Yeah, that's a great. You know, I, I assume there was something because you can hear it and the calling it the root note. I guess that's the perfect explanation for what it is and, and returning to that root like returning home um, is a perfect example uh, the other thing that you were talking about what uh, what you mentioned about your poems Dick reminded me of another thing I wanted to bring up but forgot about is that uh, there's a way too in which we can make the mistake of taking the first exit which is a problem I have especially not in poetry but in fiction I mean, that's maybe why I tend to write more poems than fiction is because I like to take the first exit ramp I see. Whereas if you're a novelist, it's about like staying on the freeway, no matter how many clean, nice exits you come across. And, uh, and, and I think a lot of times I think I, I wonder about the poems that I could have continued if I didn't take the first, you know, exit I saw. And I think that happens a lot. And I'm, I'm a tendency to, you know, feel like, Oh, the poem's done now. Great. And then not push it farther and see what's farther down that road. That is a really good point. I mean, I, as you guys know, I tend to write shorter poems. And I was wondering that, too, because I was looking at the space. And by and large, it was poems that uh, you had a little bit more time to get into and to watch unfold that had more powerful endings on average. And so, you know, it does give you sort of more material to work with, I think, in an ending. And it did make me think, too, that I should take the, le the first exit less frequently when I'm writing my own poems, because I do. Like, there's a sense, too, where, like, you know, uh, the poem that I read on the open lines uh, for my prompt on, on Monday, it was like technically two pages. I mean, it wasn't like two pages, like novel two pages, but I honestly like harbored guilt having people listen to a two page poem, uh, even though it wasn't even that many words. So I think I should take some of that advice and stay on the highway a little bit more. Uh, here's another thing too I wanted to mention. Um, this, uh, 
there's a difference between what really works well at a performance versus what work, works really well on the page. And I noticed the tendency, um, I'm not going to read the whole poem, um, but you should go read it uh, or, or listen to Patricia Smith read it, but Building the Cole's Mama, which was Patricia Smith's poem in the slam poetry issue of Rattle number 27 is one that I think about a lot as the, the way that, you know, if you're, if you're performing a poem, the drama really sort of speaks a lot more clearly and, and it works. And, and having too much drama is something that we feel a resistance to a little bit in a page poetry. Um, but if you're going to do a reading and you have a variety of poems, it's great to include a poem like this. And so, um, you know, this, it's about visiting a sixth grade class um, at Lily C. Evans School in Liberty City, Miami. And it's talking about um, somebody, you know, all the people who know somebody, you know, these little sixth graders. Is it sixth grade? Yeah, sixth graders who um, know somebody who was shot. And, um, you know, she goes, uh, let's see. I'll just do the last, just the, the very end, the last three stanzas. So she says, um, a teacher tells me this is the first time Nicole has admitted that her mother is gone, murdered by a slim silver needles and a stranger rifling through her blood, the virus pushing her skeleton through for Nicole to see. And now this child with rusty knees and mismatched shoes sees poetry as her scream and asks me for the words to build her mother up again, replacing the voice, stitching on the lost flesh. So poets, as we pick up our pens, as we flirt and sit and rejoice behind microphones, remember Nicole. She knows that we are here now, and she is an empty vessel waiting to be filled, and she is waiting, and she is waiting, and she waits. And so you can imagine, in, in a performance of that, and in the whole poem, you know, it has that fast, frenetic energy for the entirety of the poem, which is like three minutes long, because it's a slam poem. And then there's this like silence between those, um, those last lines, and she is waiting, period, and she is waiting period and she waits and there's so much silence there and the energy of the audience hanging on every syllable that she says at that point is just so palpable and strong that it works so well but that brings up to a really interesting point about the way silence operates in the ending of a poem too it's like you want energy in the silence when the poem is over and i think that's a great example of to do it literally in person in real life um, but on the page it works too as a, as a way to have that lingering effect where there's like an actual tangible energy in the air when you finish a poem and have the silence really mean something. And I think when you're talking about my poems too, what I like to do is have those like shorter lines. Um, and then, a, you know, so that there's that like little gap in, in air toward the end of a poem that, that lets the air have energy. And it's, you know, so a lot of people, a lot of people say, I think, uh, you know, Dick's friend, is it Manuel says uh, that poems are, are speaking the silence or something like that. Um, and uh and, and that's yeah, for example yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's a really good point and i have one too that i think ties in really well uh that i'd like to share so i'm going to go ahead and just um tweet it as a reply and then um which is now paused for some reason even though it should be sending instantly because i'm talking to you guys okay um anyway i think this ties in really well with what you were just talking about tim um, in terms of like making, putting something in the silence, you know, in that resonance that's there. And so this is one that takes a, a, a very tactile turn at the end, as we'll see. And this was um, recommended on uh, your Facebook, I think, by Clint Margraves, actually, Tim. So I'm going to read uh, The Portrait by Stanley Kunitz. My mother never forgave my father for killing himself, especially at such an awkward time and in a public park that spring when I was waiting to be born. 
She locked his name in her deepest cabinet and would not let him out, though I could hear him thumping. When I came down from the attic with a pastel portrait in my hand of a long-lipped stranger with a brave mustache and deep brown level eyes, she ripped it into shreds without a single word and slapped me hard. In my 64th year, I can feel my cheek still burning. So that one, of course, I mean, we've all probably been slapped on the face before. We know how that feels. And I mean, you can really feel it from, from the poignance of that poem. And also interesting in that, I think, I think that's a really strong ending, even though it's a pretty short poem, relatively speaking, too. Yeah, and another one where it's an actual lingering effect. And so you feel it and then it lingers with you. And that's what makes the poem last forever. Like what people reread and reread it because it has that effect where you don't forget it when you put it down. Yeah, and one thing I'm definitely learning from this space is how many metaphors for lingering there are. Apparently a ton. <laughs> yeah, there really are. Um, I think there are a few people we haven't talked to yet. Uh, do you want to call on someone next, Katie? Yeah, definitely. So we have a couple of people who haven't spoken in this space, um, but have been active very much on open lines. Um, first, we have Vishwajit Mishra, who writes great poems every week, pretty much, for the open lines and writes prompt poems, too and uh, always have something entertaining going on in his life. So how are you doing today, Bishwajit? Oh, I'm good. Thanks, Katie. I might be a little behind in uh, responding. I was actually talking about that lingering effect, especially metaphors at the end. And uh, I, I have a short poem. I mean, I, not my poem. It's a very short poem, and it was probably written by a child. It is on the Poet Organization's website. Uh, if we, uh, can I read it? And then we can talk about it. You'll know why I'm uh, talking. With sure, you. yeah, go ahead. It's like a poem, like a red wheelbarrow type of poem. So I don't know what to talk about it. It's called Gift by Hilda Conkling. This is mint and here are three pings. I brought you, mother. They're wet with rain and shining with it. The pinks smell like more of them in a blue vase. The mint smells like summer in many gardens. So that's it. <laughs> and probably it was written by her when she was a child. And uh, it, I, for me, it has a kind of a uh, lingering effect. It's a little bit of simile at the end. Um, smells like summer. But it's one of those points where multiple senses uh, get something more out of poem. I mean, like I can smell the mint, I can smell, I can see when she says they're shining with the rainwater and such a simple poem. Yeah, that's really well said. It is interesting. So much of too, it, it makes me think about how so much of what makes a great ending is just what you want to be doing throughout the poem in general. But the difference of the ending is that because it's the, you know, the last part of the poem, it's basically like it is highlighted or underlined right there. So it's all the more impactful and important. So it, it's really interesting to me how much scent is coming up. It's not something I really thought about with poem endings before, but so many endings that are really powerful do have to do with the sense of smell. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, that's what I thought. It's like that red wheelbarrow uh, poem, uh, which is so short, but it's still, it's so simple and straight and there's nothing complicated, but the way it's, it's just knit together, it just forces you to see again and again. 
Yeah, that's super well said. And I'm a fan of the Red Wheelbarrow poem because I named my fantasy football team after it. So <laughs> very true. So thanks yeah, another, for that. Another example of the uh, the image, you know, the lingering after image of that. And the red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens, you know, and that just hovers there in your mind, like the in the garden too of the poem you were just reading. Which was it? Yeah, that's so. Yeah, right. you know, and too with the red wheelbarrow, I think that's such an interesting choice that um, one Carlos Williams included white for white chickens because it makes the image so much the contrast between the red wheelbarrow and the white chickens. Even though we know most chickens are white, you know it. Uh, really makes the cut bigger and makes the image a lot more powerful, I think, in that poem, too. So let's see, too. We don't have very much time left, but we haven't heard from Paul Mitchell. Uh, I want to correctly say his name, because I just want to call him PNB, <laughs> Paul Mitchell Bernstein, who has been writing awesome poems and, and coming up on the Rattlecast a lot. So how are you doing, Paul? And thanks for joining today. Oh, thanks, Katie. Thanks, guys. And I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little nervous about um. I mean, we've moved on and I'm afraid I'm going to have like the last word or something, which I hope doesn't happen. But um, it was about when you read Tim's poem um, that ended on uh, We Dropped the Anchor. I dropped the anchor. It's kind of slipping away from me now a little bit. Um, it You know, it reminded because it, it felt like it ended. Um, like I, I, I commented on it, how breaking the expectation. Right. So in music and then Dick brought back up the music and. Um, in music, when you count music, when you learn to count music, it's one and two and three, and there's like the downstroke and the upstroke, right? And I felt like Tim's poem ended on, on the upstroke, which I think is super powerful because it denies the expectation of, of coming down on that final beat and like not landing right on that beat, but but landing or, uh, you know, like I won't say to read it, but the E.E. E. Cummings poem that I suggested has a very strict form where the pattern repeats, repeats, repeats. And then at the end, he breaks the pattern. And I think that adds a lot of power to it. And I used to, I did video editing for a while. And one of the things you learn is that you want to do the cut just before the beat, especially in, in editing, say like a Guy Ritchie movie where the editing is heavily sort of timed and almost musical in itself. Like if you watch cuts, they always come right before you expect them to come or right after. And I feel like it's that difference between the downstroke and the upstroke and sometimes breaking that pattern and not, you know, another musical term that Dick used is, is unresolved. And I think like that's the word, like you just break that expectation and it's so powerful. And I think it's what made the end of Tim's poem so powerful because I was listening to the rhythm of it and it broke I felt like before that downbeat, it broke on the upbeat, which is still part of the same beat. Like there's an upstroke and the downstroke. Um, that's kind of the difference between reggae and 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 a lot of other music. Um, but yeah, just breaking that expectation. And there's all kinds of ways to do it. And um, and it functions in a lot of art. It functions in music. Um, uh, and it functions in in film editing. Um, to to and just a beat before a half beat before or a half beat after and it really adds a, a dramatic effect thanks for letting me speak yeah that's great a uh, great commentary and I, I you know another thing i don't know how much about but it's interesting that all these things play um for the same reason because we're all human beings that we we have our, the same structure of the way our brains work which is trying to build these models of the world and then seeing where they need to be changed and then having a you know dopamine released every time we get to update our model and make it better. 
And so we're drawn to this sense of repetition and then breaking the repetition and having to adjust the pattern. And, and we're really sort of amused and entertained by it forever. And that's what draws human beings forward into the future is, uh, is this one simple model of, of trying to, to create our, an understanding and then correct and correct and correct it all the time. So it's fascinating to hear that. I think that they call that a backbeat. And in, in, uh, when, when the beat's on the, on the end, is that right? Maybe I'm thinking wrong, but we have a poem by Craig Van Ruyen, who won the um, uh, Rattle Poetry Prize that talks about that exact beat and rhythm and uh, using it as a metaphor for having a, a, a child for the first time, which is interesting too. Yeah, I, Paul, I really love everything that, that you said about that. I find it really impressive because obviously I've spent a while reading Tim's poetry, read, read his poems a few times to this point, and I was never able to articulate it on the level you just said with it ending on the upbeat. Because I realized, too, that the, the effect of that is when it ends on the upbeat is that it invites the reader to, you know, fill the rest of the music and the sound by kind of going over the poem themselves um in their head to kind of fill out the rest of the beat so thanks a lot for sharing that that was super interesting yeah it really was uh but we're out of time katie so do you want to close out with one last poem and then sure. while you do think about what we're gonna do next week because i don't think we've discussed it yet so read while also thinking and planning for next week that's my mantra multi-tabling but when it comes instead of poker to poetry so all right the poem that i want to close out with it's actually a more subtle ending, I think. And it's one that though the ending helps the poem really stick with me. And it's a poem that I really love that I think more people honestly should be talking about this. So this is by uh, Nancy Miller Gomez. And it's from her chapbook that was um, done with Rattle uh, a few years ago now, right, Tim? I think a couple years ago. How many years ago is this? <laughs> that was probably like four years ago, five years ago, something like that. Okay. So I really love this poem and it seems seasonal too. And every single poem that I'm writing or reading now has to do with apples this time of year. So growing apples. There's big excitement in C-Block today on the windowsill in a plastic ice cream cup, a little plant is growing. This is all the men want to talk about how an apple seed germinated in a crack of damp concrete, how they tore open tea bags to collect the leaves, leached them in water, then laid the sprout onto the bed made of Lipton. How this finger of spring dug one delicate root down into the dark fannings, and now two small sleeves of green are pushing out from the emerging tip. The men are tipsy with this miracle. Each morning, one by one, they go to the window and check the progress of the struggling plant. All through the day, they return to stand over the seedling and whisper. So I love that ending. It does combine, you know, the sense of sound and then a really great image of something that I think it's been doing a great job building to throughout the whole poem of these incarcerated men, you know, having hope. And so I really love that poem. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, Nancy's finally got a full-length book coming out in the spring. I've been, we've been pushing and pushing her to uh, get something out because she is one of the best poets I know. And she is so hesitant to, you know, admit that anything is complete. And so she doesn't publish and hardly uh, took forever to submit another manuscript. Well, if I could grow apples like that, I would write even more poems than I do. <laughs> so I'm glad here she's gonna have a book out soon. So, oh, and I figured out what I think we should do uh, the next week's face on, Tim. <laughs> I don't know, what is it? It's, uh, I, I don't know, but you can definitely multitask with your uh, multi-tabling poker skills. So I think you can come up with something <laughs> while reading. Well, 
I think that we should do it on Emily Dickinson. So there's um the there's an Emily Dickinson festival going on right now through her museum where a lot of people are one thing that's going on is a marathon reading of all eighteen hundred of her poems. I'm actually reading some of the poems on Zoom uh, tomorrow. So I have Emily Dickinson on the brain, perhaps even more than normal. So I think we should, you know, look at look at her poems, look at what she was doing that was working. Also, of course, her life as a recluse is always a subject of fascination, but it could be a nice tie-in too to those who are participating because a lot of the festival's online and it's free, so it's pretty neat. Well, that's cool. That'll be, it'll be a space where I can learn a lot because I, you know, I know her famous classic poems, but I don't know that much about, I had no idea she had 1800 poems. That's insane. <laughs> so I have a lot to learn, I think. Well, I have the book of all 1800 in, in my office, so you can get to reading and be ready for the space next week. Well, I think I'll wait for the space and learn uh, through the audio route. How dare you, sir? You have to read all 1800 before next week. So, I mean, Thanks, you guys, so much for coming today. I feel like I really expanded my knowledge of poem endings, and it makes me more excited because I do feel like if there's one particular aspect that's a little bit harder for me with poems in general, is it is the ending. And so I feel like speaking to everybody today and hearing what resonates to them the most will help me the next time I'm writing, and I hope it's the same for you all. Yeah, thanks, everybody. It's been a lot of fun. Take care. Have a great week, and thanks to everybody, especially the speakers that came for the first time. Fish with it and Paul. Thanks. Bye.